We're in Job 35. We're in the speech of Elihu that the ESV says is Elihu condemns Job, and I took issue with that. And Derek Thomas says Elihu condemns Job, but Christopher Ash says Elihu's appeal to Job, and I do think that is a better characterization of it. Just because the consequences are harsh and just because the speaker is animated and intense, it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's doing something wrong. He is trying to get Job not to sit with sinners and scoffers, as the Psalms say. He's trying to get Job to not stand in the council, sit down in the council of the wicked. And, and so he's encouraging and appealing to Job to that end. He's been talking about suffering, suffering revealing our character. Now that we're starting to get near the end of Job, we begin to see that with respect to what God is doing in Job, that was the purpose all along. Primary purpose, God's defense of his own goodness and nature in, his, uh, in response to Satan's accusations. But with respect to what God is doing in Job, why does God let this happen to Job? We learn that it's the suffering that is revealing something inside of Job that he didn't know was there, that he had not had an occasion to, to demonstrate, which is that Job is very faithful in seasons of plenty and struggles with faithfulness in seasons of want. And so this suffering enters into Job's life. It is revealing his true character. It's teaching him about the character of God. Remember last week where we finished up was Psalm 119 where the psalmist says that if he had not suffered, he would not have learned God's law. Uh, it was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your decrees, Psalm 119, 71. Suffering is also teaching Job, one of the hard lessons, that real faith cannot be by sight. <laughs> faith is not antithetical to evidence. It's not like having evidence undermines faith. But for faith to be real, the faith would have to be present in the absence of that evidence, in the absence of our ability to see how God is using all things for good. Faith is yet believing that God works all things for good. Why? Because God said so. Not just because we have a good want that to be true, but because God said so. Faith is believing that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. And so the nature of faith requires this trusting God in the darkness. And that is really hard. And that, as much as anything else, is what's brought Job to this place of accusation against God. It's what's brought Job to this, this self-righteousness that has begun to manifest. It's not that I'm saying Job could not be happy without his stuff. That was Satan's accusation, was that God, Job wouldn't love God without his stuff and without all this blessing. That's not, that's not precisely right. It's that Job is struggling to trust God when Job doesn't understand what's happening. Job is struggling to trust God in the darkness. And as he's meditated more and more on what he doesn't understand about his own experience, he's had, he's had two options. One option is by faith to trust God more and more even though we cannot see. But Job has taken the other one, which is to accuse God more and more because he cannot see. And that's the issue with which Elihu takes great exception. Job's pain should be teaching him the meaning of trusting in God. That's only one of two places our pain can drive us. Away from God, I can't trust God because God is not trustworthy because my situation suggests that God is not trustworthy. That is one reasonable path. If you take that reasonable path, what you're saying is, I do not believe what God says about himself. And that's okay. People are allowed to say that. But that's resisting the grace of God. That's standing with 
sinners and scoffers. It's putting yourself above God and saying that if God can't make it make sense to me, then I don't have to believe it. We're going to feel that way at times. The question is, as you wrestle with that, as you unpack it at length, as Job has, is, is that really what you conclude? Or somewhere along the way, do you conclude, no, God is God. You see this in all but one of the Psalms of Lament. You see that wrestling. My foes have surrounded me. God has abandoned me. Bad, 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 bad. And then all except one of them, I think 88, is that right? all except 88, Psalm 88, there's a, yet I will trust in God. Why? Well, what he said and what he's done. I look at God in the past, and even though I can't see the future, and, and I'm surrounded by this fog and darkness, I still know who God is. So I will magnify his name. So I will trust in him. So I will. That, that's, the wrestling isn't the sin. That's why we said at the beginning, Job isn't sinning in the wrestling. It's, it's when it's time to make a conclusion, when it's time to plead your final case, is the final case the case of the Psalms of Lament, yet I will, or is the final case Job's summary argument, which is God has no good reason to do this. I don't deserve any of it. That's what this has become about. Think about it. Um... He's forgotten all that God had given him. He had an incredible life. Incredible life. And now, through, as you march through this, you start to see, at first, it seems like when you start with Job, you're like, how can God do it? You know? <laughs> it's just like, um, just angry. You feel that same anger. Yep. That's how I responded to it. But now it's kind of, you start seeing that, wow, he had so much. This is why I think Elihu is is such an important linchpin, because our anger, our, our, our frustration starts out against God. How could you do this to Job? And, and then turns to the, the counselors, the friends. How could you do this to Job? And we find ourselves very much on Job's side. And I think the wrong way to read Elihu, personally, is to take big issue with Elihu and once again take Job's side. And I, and I think part of my justification for saying that is God doesn't do that. God rebukes what Job says and doesn't rebuke what Elihu said. I think Elihu is this linchpin for us starting to see what the key issues really are here. And, yeah, we're very much a what have you done for me lately mentality. Yeah. Where that's why I, my whole career in ministry, I've encouraged people to keep some kind of journal or list of God's blessings, of the big prayers that God has answered, the huge ones, of the situations where God clearly revealed his power, where he made a way where there seemed to be no way. Because there's going to come a point where you'll say to God, you don't love me. And it's interesting to be able to turn to that page of a journal and say, well, then what's all this? Because we we really want to draw conclusions from this moment. That's what Job's trying to do. Or just and, and remember, pain pain hurts. Right? It doesn't come from a bad place of God has to be blessing me every five seconds or I'm mad at him. This is the depths of pain. Uh, the Psalms of Lament, depths of pain. It, the pain is very real. And so we don't we don't minimize the reality of the suffering, but you do step back in a, in analysis and say Am I really ready to make the conclusion that this suffering reveals God is against me? And that's the argument Job's trying to make. Is God is against me. Uh, and that's not something we can draw from our circumstances ever. It's not how that will work. Well, on the day of judgment, I guess we could draw that from our circumstances. <laughs> Elihu makes a case... Uh, he made the general case before verse 16. That's what we talked about last week. And now he's going to turn to Job and he's going to make the specific case to Job. Kate, can you read 16 to 21? He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping. And what was set on your table was full of fatness. But you are full of the judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. Beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing, and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. 
Will you cry for help? Avail. Sorry. Will you cry your help? Will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress, or all the force of your strength? Do not long for the night when peoples vanish in their place. Take care. Do not turn to iniquity. For this you have chosen rather than affliction. What Elihu says that's so harsh is just a different way of saying what I said a minute ago, which is that when you come to this point and you're wrestling with God over suffering, there's only two options. You're either going to believe God and by faith submit yourself to whatever it is he's doing, or you're going to disbelieve God and uh, accuse him of injustice. And what he's saying is there's two options, Job. There's the greedy mouth. This is quoting Christopher Ashe. There's the greedy mouth of death and hell, which are threatening to devour you because of your attitude of proud defiance toward God. Or there's believe God. That's it. Those are finally the options. And so God, by these sufferings, is trying to bring Job back to trust and in the scheme of Job's sanctification to a place of deeper trust. And so the language here is things are pressing in on Job, but why are they pressing in on Job? They're pressing in because God is at work in Job. God is trying to make Job more like Christ, which will result in blessing. But the process of being made more like Christ is the worst. It's it's the worst. Taking sinful, fallen human beings who want what we want and want to be our own gods and want ease and all the things that we want, what happens if God gives us over to them? We die. We perish in our sins. We, we do not, no one seeks God. No one, all have turned astray. Each goes after his own way. That's not hyperbole. That's one of the more modest statements of scripture. We absolutely would not seek God. And so there's this process by which God makes us seekers of him and makes us continually seekers of him, and makes us more and more dependent on him, and makes us, scripture gives you the language, die more and more to self. Of all the ways Job is almost dying in the chapters we've been reading, do you see much dying to self? Not really. In fact, you see the self getting grander and grander. The self has a lot more to say about God's injustice and what he deserves and why this is wrong and why it doesn't make sense. And, why. and so at first, it's this balance of he's really praising God. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And over the course of 35 chapters, you really see that balance change. And now Elihu's the one having to come in and defend the nature of God. So yes, he, he's being constricted. That was the language there that Kate read. But the purpose of God is to bless him. The problem... Ash says, is that instead of being full of God's blessings, that's the end of verse 16, he is full of the kind of false judgments about God that wicked people make. That's the beginning of 17. He's full of the wrong thing. And that puts him in a place of great danger, which is why Elihu's language here is so terrifying. Uh, Noah, will you read verses 22 to 25? Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, you have done wrong? Remember to extol his work, of which men have some. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Where, I mean, I think all of us have read Job before. Where are you going to hear language like this again? From God himself. Elias says, who, who told God how to do this? All this stuff God's done. This running the world, creating the world. Who, who, who gave God the instruction manual? It's 
obviously a rhetorical question because it's absurd. If no one told God what to do and how to do it, because that's absurd, no one can do that. And no one, <laughs> therefore, no one has the cosmic knowledge that would be required to tell God that he's doing it wrong. That's Elihu's argument here to Job. You're so sure that God is doing this wrong. God, I know you're holy and just and blah, blah, blah. But in this case, with respect to me, Job, you're doing it wrong. Let me give you some clear instructions on how you ought to run my life because of the way that you are. But instead of that arrogant protest, Elihu says that what God is owed is humble praise. Who is like you, O Lord? And, and that can come from a place of deep confusion. <laughs> what kind of God does this? But it must come from a place of humility. And so he encourages Job to join the choir of those who praise God this way and not the choir of those who accuse God. So, in the beginning, it was Satan challenging um, God, right? Um, that by somebody, you know, mm-hmm. that had everything. So, would God have done this without Satan challenging him? If God wants to have exposed the fact that Job had this righteousness in him, self-righteousness. It's very hard to deal in hypotheticals yeah. in Scripture. But I I will say, let's take it from the other direction, which is look at how much God has chosen to do through this. And and besides the, remember that meaning is a circle, right? So what's the meaning of Job? Think of all the extra meanings throughout Job that we're finding. When you accuse God, Whose side are you taking? Whose voice are you parroting? Satan's. Satan is the accuser. He accuses us, but he also accuses God. And so when we, through our circumstances, use those circumstances to accuse God of being something that he's not, the evil one is seeking to devour. The, the, you know, it's a spiritual warfare reality that's happening. And we are getting called up into a cosmic battle between God and Satan and being asked to take sides. And that's not over-the-top language. We sort of battle with Job through Job. You know, in that, you know, we start out with feeling what he's feeling. So we're sort of battling through the whole thing right. and coming back out at a different point after all of this. And I think for me, standing up here teaching it, not in a place of deep suffering currently, it's very easy for me to sort of turn on Job pretty early in the book, once the self-righteousness starts to come out, and for me to take Elihu persuasively, I think when you're in the heart of suffering, you can very much still be on Job's side here, even when Elihu's speaking. Right. And you can focus on Elihu's harshness or his anger. Or, and it's not until God finally speaks that you're forced to either side with Satan and say, no, God is unjust, or submit humbly. That's what the whole book's about. Submitting humbly before God. The hardest thing we'll ever do. You also have the parts of, you know, of listening to the friends, right? And, you know, understanding what's not comfort, right? Yeah. Again, lots of things that are helpful within Job. All right. Uh, So the argument here is that if you can't tell, if you were not there to tell God what to do in the beginning... You can't tell God he's doing it wrong now. God needed no one in the beginning. 
and he does not need your constructive criticism now in order to do things correctly. And Christopher Ashe says, Elihu knows that this kind of argument is accurate, but it lacks the persuasive force to change entrenched positions. That is correct. So then Elihu goes into a couple of illustrations, a couple of examples in this speech. He uses imagery to try and drive this point home in a more persuasive way than simply setting forth the theological truth. This starts in uh, verse 26. Uh, This is a really long section, so I don't want to read the whole thing. But let me... Let me go through some key points here. So verse 26, Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. For, that's how you know you're about to get an illustration. For, he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist and rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. Uh, So what's he talking about? Weather. Weather's always a great example. Storms, rain. In fact, if you really want to dig into the details there, the whole cycle of how the ground is watered by uh, by rain and how precipitation works. But then there's the storm and the sense of of mystery and this power. How we, we are thousands of years later. If Job is really one of the oldest books in Scripture, if not the oldest, we are thousands of years removed. We have thousands of years of scientific discovery and exploration. We have billions of dollars of fancy equipment and and weather stations everywhere. And I mean, we have spent more money, more time, more energy on understanding the weather than just about anything in human history. And how are we doing? Why is it even worth looking? There is a sense of mystery, wonder, and beyondness of God's government of the world. That is the point. And we don't even understand weather. Um, God does these things. He controls these things. He brings forth these things. He has purposes for these things. And we can't hardly predict them five minutes in advance, whether you need an umbrella or not. How can you take that, what should be humility with regards to the weather, and then turn to God on things of way more consequence and say, I can tell you how to do it. I understand how the universe should be run. I understand what should happen next. Uh, not, not a fantastic argument. Um, he also makes the point that God's power in the world is acting for blessing and for judgment. So you get verses like, 26, behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable, can't understand. And then uh, verse 31, for by these he judges people. He gives food in abundance, blessing and judgment. Um, Verse 5, chapter 37, God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. And on and on. You're going to hear more of this language from God himself when he, where were you when I? All of this serves God's purposes. He is in control, in blessing, and judgment, in his power, in all of it. How in the world could we expect to fully understand him? Science is good and helpful, and we learn a lot of things. But if we have learned anything 
from modernism and the age of science in the last 150 years, it's that we pretty much never get it all the way right. We make theories and they seem right and then we test them and then we modify them and change them because there was something that didn't work. We were so sure that the universe was expanding, except maybe we're sort of confused. We were so sure the speed of light is a constant, except now it's definitely speeding up. We were, and, and that's not to science's shame, it's to God's credit. We cannot fully comprehend what God is doing in this world. We can't even fully comprehend the world that he's made. So have a little bit of humility when saying to God, you're doing it wrong. This section is filled with behold gods. I think I said that before, that this is sort of the, the headline. Behold God and then some stuff that is that God is great and that God is beyond our understanding. And so we should not expect that we're going to fully understand him. We should look at the earth and processes we see like weather and condensation are intelligible, but mysterious. There's some mysterious aspect to them. There's something beyond our grasp. And then he goes to the fierce thunderstorm and the rain and the purpose of rain. The same action of God, this storm that Elihu mentions, brings judgment for some and blessings for others, just as the same affliction, partially understandable, not completely comprehensible, brings blessing to some and judgment for others. And that's the, that's the harsh, if you want to call it that, reality of being a creature in a created world. Where we most get sideways with God is when we forget the massive gulf between creator and creature. It's, it's really what it comes down to. God loves us. He's adopted us as his children. We're co-heirs with Christ. The Bible has all of this amazing eminence language around our relationship with God. God is with us. God is for us. God is beside us. Christ goes before us, behind us. He's the pioneer of our faith. Scripture has all this incredible language about our proximity to God. But that proximity is because he has drawn near. It is not because we have any right to it. In fact, it could not happen apart from God humbling himself. The fact that God chose to reveal himself at all becomes increasingly marvelous throughout Scripture. He didn't just make us and then leave us to be. He made us and then he walked in the cool of the garden with the creatures he'd made so that they would know him and love him and worship him. And then even in their rebellion, he determined to know them in redemption. And he sends as prophets to reveal himself to them. Unbelievable. And then we'll hear in Isaiah today, his plan is to, to have a people called Israel and for that people to be a light in the darkness and, and the nations would be saved because of Israel. Well, how'd that work out? So Israel goes into total rebellion and God, instead of throwing away this plan, says, no, I'm going to save Israel so that they can still be a light to the nations and I'll send a new Israel. His name is Jesus and he will be the light to the nations so that all peoples will be drawn to him because my plan of redemption shall... And, and you just, why? Why? Why would you do this? And, and reading scripture through that lens should help us with humility. Rather than reading, our li reading God through the lens of our lives, which is, there's a bunch of stuff here I don't like. If God loved me, he'd do better than this. And, and then you get to the incarnation, which is just this unfathomable picture where God humiliates himself by taking on human flesh. The, the, the creature-creator distinction that is this massive gulf 
and God takes it upon himself to be confined in time and space, to have flesh, to, to grow hungry, to be weary, to be sad, to suffer pain, and to die. It, it doesn't make any sense. And so if we start with that lens, the lens of how God's revealed himself, and then we look at our circumstances, we say, yeah, these are really bad, and I want to understand these, and I want to change these, but I also know in faith who God is. As opposed to when we come at it from the other direction, which is we use our circumstances to understand God, and then we say, well, this is bad, so God must be bad too. Or God's good, just not toward me. That's where most of us go. I think most of us in the Christian life don't accuse God of actually being bad. We just say, God's bad toward me. Because that way we can blame ourselves while we're really blaming God. It's kind of interesting to think of uh, apostles and children and stuff that didn't come from lives of like Job, right? And they came from lives where they had lived. Right? And then they were going to suffer greatly, but some so much. Some had little, some had a lot. Yeah, Levi, the tax collector, was doing just fine. Well, <laughs> I, think, I think it's a mix on purpose. Um, but it's definitely counter to what you would expect for somebody who's going to come establish dominion in the world. It's, let, me get, let me get these boneheads right, well, with, with very little, little. Yeah. And if they had, but I mean, they're, they were miserable in a lot of ways, you know. Well, that then you start going beyond scripture. Like when yeah. you when you start making uh, scripture doesn't tell us Matthew was miserable. True. So we got to be careful there. Um, so you go all through this text, you get more and more wild and incomprehensible phenomena, storm clouds, turn around and around. Right? That'd be a tornado, the the or a hurricane, the winds. How do these random hurricanes and random tornadoes turn around and around? Uh, verse 12, by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. It's a great line from Ash. It's one of my favorite in the book. The wild things that happen in life are God's wild things, and all their wildness is under his control. I'm not saying that makes the pain of the wild things less. It makes the pain of the wild things bearable. I don't know how else you endure in pain, except knowing that all their wildness is under his control. And so what Elijah is trying to do is evoke in Job a sense of Humble wonder. And it's this twofold realization. One is that God's going to be God and he, like, he doesn't need your permission to do any of this. But two is God's the only one who can be trusted to do it. God is the only one who can be trusted to use that cosmic power for cosmic justice, for a final cosmic good. And so that's where this starts to wrap up. Um, Karen, can you read 37, 14 to 20? <clears throat> Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancing of the cloud, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? You whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind, can you, like him, spread out the skies, hard as a cast metal mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. Shall it be told him that I would speak? Did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? This is the right moment for this in Job. We've talked a lot about being good comforters and seeking to understand people and to love people and care for people more than to win on theological scorecards. And yet, if you never challenge someone's false belief, 
and you never point them to the truth of God, you have not comforted them. It's a question of when. And inside, in this room, all of us are wired to fall off on either one side or the other, and you know which you are. We either tell them too soon, or we never tell them. We tell them too soon because we want to be right and we want it to be over. Or we never tell them because we think it will cost us the relationship. We think it will create that conflict that we don't want. Aren't they suffering enough? And I think Elihu... I know Elihu because God comes in next and speaks. Elihu picks the right moment to challenge Job. And you notice throughout what we've been reading before, there's a lot of there's a lot of third person talk. Bear with me a little and I will show you plural at the beginning of verse 36. He's speaking in generalities. And what does he say in 37:14? Hear this, O Job. And then all of these yous that follow are going to be singular. It's it's time to challenge Job. Do you know? Do you know? Can you? Verses 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. Job, you know what it is to experience the weather and to be unable to control the weather. And in view of such mysterious and awesome greatness... It's dangerous for you to draw up a case against God. That's 19 and 20. To draw up a case against him because of our darkness. The fact that I don't understand doesn't mean that there is no rightness. There is no right explanation. Sometimes we're not entitled to know. And we we do this on human levels all the time. We do this with children and grandchildren, but not just with children. We do this with friends, and they don't need to know my reason why this was the right thing for me to do, why this was the reason for my family to do. They, sometimes people are not entitled to an answer, and, and we're quite comfortable with that in the human realm. God is always able to say, you're not entitled to an answer. And Elihu is encouraging Job to bow before God's sovereign wisdom rather than to get all wrapped up in this demand of an answer. Uh, Matt, can you read 37, 21 to 24? And now no one looks on the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Therefore, men fear him who does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. So the picture is that the storm does break. Storm breaks. The clouds part. And the brightness that comes forth is God coming out of the north in golden splendor. It's it's that God from the heavens breaks through to our sight. He was there all along, but he breaks through and we can actually see that he's kept his promises. We can see his purposes. And so the right response when you know that that's what's going to happen. How do you know that's what's going to happen? Because that's what God said is going to happen. So when you know that that's what's going to happen, what's the right response when you can't see it? What's the right response when you can only see clouds and the thunderstorm instead? It's to fear him. Loving, reverent fear, biblical fear. And Elihu is afraid that Some of the things Job has begun to say do not reflect fear of God. They do not suggest that Job is remembering the creator-creature distinction, remembering 
who God is, remembering that God answers to no one. So that's the end of Elihu. He's made four speeches. He's claimed to speak from the very voice of God. And I agree with Ash. I think Elihu has a very John the Baptist role. He is preparing the way for God to come and speak. He comes in in aggressive weirdness. And he clears the way for God to speak. And so in his first speech, he says, God does speak. You accuse him of being silent, Job, but God does speak. He speaks in prophecy, in conscience, and in suffering. And then in his second speech, he says, God is just simply because he's God. When you challenge his justice, you're challenging his deity. If your accusations were right and God is acting unjustly, then God is not God. So think carefully before you make that accusation. In his third speech, he deals with the very human question. Well, if that's true, then what does it profit you to be good? If that's true, then why does it matter what we do? And he says that is completely the wrong question to ask. And if you ever want God to reveal himself to you and to give you an answer to your question, you better not be asking that question because that question is so far from what is right. You need, it's, it's just ridiculously self-centered. And then in his last speech, he says that it's only the majestic power of God over the cosmos that can be trusted with any of this. The wildness is his wildness. And that should give us humility, but it should also give us hope because no one else could be trusted with, with this wildness. With, with, think about the, the most complicated project you've ever managed in your life. Whether it's work or kids' school, multiple children figuring out their school and activities, complicated family vacation, the most complicated thing you've ever managed. God is managing that times every person that's ever lived. (laughs) And so when we look at God and say, hey, uh, this should have been sage green instead of mint green. And my whole life is ruined because it's sage green instead of mint green. How highly are we thinking of ourselves that we see anything better than he does when he's managing the whole thing? So that's the end of Elihu. Next week we get into the Lord's speech. Questions you have about that? All right. (laughs) I'm going to explode my brain here with this question. So... On your diagram up there, so let's say the X in the middle is, is Earth and what we see and what we think is what's going on. And the real circle is where God is and the angels and evil and Satan, which... I would draw that diagram differently then, okay? Uh, in other words, it's a bigger picture. It's a, it's a... Yeah, it's realms. The created realm. The heavenly realm. Okay. But it's all the kingdom of heaven. And the, it's all the kingdom of God. What right? can you see? We can see this. Right. And then we can see the part of this that he's told us. Right. He's way up here. I don't draw God. Big blob. <laughs> and is the only one who sees it all. And we don't know why he made Satan. We don't know why all this stuff is going on. Because none of it makes any sense to us. Based on... It's not the way we would do it. That's not the way people... People do, okay. But that's obviously the way that that's going on. And he is the Lord of Sabaoth, which means he's the Lord of all lords. He's the Lord of all... Hosts, yeah, yeah, all the things. All the hosts, all the... Seen and unseen, visible and invisible. Right, and so there's a huge invisible piece mm-hmm. that we have no clue about, like zero. Well, only what there. he's told us. But we know it's there. Yeah, it's more than zero, but it's very 
Fra fractionally little. Yep. Minuscule. And we certainly don't understand why, and we certainly don't understand how. And we do, I mean, we, cer we certainly don't have answers to any of those questions. So therefore, the will of God is reality. Again, multiple wills, yes. When we say the will of God, same answer as last week, what do you mean by that phrase? God is sovereign. If it's here, it's here because he's letting it be here. It's here. It's happening because he could stop it if he wanted to. That is one, uh, one type of God's will. Yes. Okay. So there's more, but, but there's that going on, which to me is huge. Yeah, yeah. So his will of decree... Which is whatsoever comes to pass, which is what you're saying. Right. Everything that happens in any realm is a part of his will of decree. Yeah. Yes. And therefore, we, okay. therefore, if I live my life based on escaping things I don't like, which is the typical human yes. strategy, <laughs> is to use whatever means necessary that are good to escape the things we don't like. Yes, by that. But the things we don't like are here to make us transformed into the image of his son. Mm -hmm. So therefore, isn't the more, the more we surrender and accept and I, I can't, I don't know that I can use the word embrace, but I think I need, maybe we need to embrace the will of God in our life because it's like that eschesis or that discipline is there for a reason. That hardship. That suffering. I, yeah, I think, and because we're humans and we'll ruin anything, we, we will even ruin what you just said. So monasticism, Catholicism, take what you just said and make that the object of the Christian life. Right. That surrender right. is the object of the Christian life. But that's not what scripture says. It's the posture of the Christian life. It's not the object. The object of the Christian life is to be as like Christ as God wants you to be like Christ. That's the transformative change that you can have because that one applies in seasons of suffering and in seasons of plenty. If the question is always, how do I surrender to what God is doing, good, bad, and indifferent? Because my greatest desire is to be like Christ. And so when we receive, or when it's withheld, or when we rejoice, or when we weep, our question is, how can this make me more like Jesus? And not the theoretical question, how can this make me more like Jesus? No, no, no. How? Show me, Lord. Let me draw closer to you. Maybe that's all it is, is that you're being more like Jesus because you're drawing closer to him, whatever's happening. Or maybe he has something very concrete to deal with you, such as here in Job. But whatever it is, if your goal is to be like Christ and your posture is the submission, that, that's the way to live. That's holiness. Because it's resistance that, that, that causes the... I loved the way you said it before. That's true. I'm not disagreeing with you, but I really love the way you said it before where it was more escapism. So much of what we're doing is an attempt to escape. Is that what Elijah was talking about when he says, do not long for the night? Yeah, I mean, Job said before, yes. What Job said before, you know, he just wants to die. It's It's... I, will, I would rather escape if I can't get what I want out of this life. Well, that is the, that, you're right, it's resistance, but the posture is escape. I gotta, I gotta get out of here. I gotta, I gotta have relief from this. I gotta have relief from this because what I will not endure is whatsoever comes to pass. What I can't handle in life is the whatsoever comes to pass. And. But then where does prayer fit in? Because he also says, Right? So there's still, you know, prayer as an intervention uh, when you're in. But it's my yeah, sur well. yeah, surrender doesn't mean 
surrender to the circumstances as though they will never change. It's surrender to the God who made the circumstances. And so we are always praying, not my will, your will be done. What I would like for your will to be is that I would feel better. (laughs) We never use language that says, oh, God is so transforming me in the image of his son. I just won the lottery. Like, we don't talk like that. Right. Like, that, everybody knows that's not helping you do that. Like, but, but, it, but it should be because it's whatsoever comes to pass. Right. See, we only, we only put the suffering in thee. This makes me more like Jesus, which is such a loss. We would... Oh boy, this is going to be theologically dangerous to say, but I will say it for a fact and I can defend it if I need to. We would get more good stuff if we would look at the good stuff as making us more like Jesus too. He's using the stuff that works because he is focused on this and everything that comes to pass is focused on making you like Christ. And if he could make you win the lottery and you would use that lottery winning to be more like Christ, you'll win the lottery. Which is mostly what we do. And all I would say is now there's an increasing, not increasing, monasticism is old. There is always an undercurrent in the church of people who treat the suffering as a end and a good of itself. Because nobody ever said, you're just trying to suffer. You just, you just, you just. But the moment somebody gets good things, it's, oh, how are you going to end up more like Christ? Well, nobody ever tells the person in suffering, you know, you're really at risk of escaping from God and resisting this suffering. No, we, we comfort people in their suffering. It's both. Which is any legalism. Both, that's right. Yeah, whatever comes to pass is what will make his people like Jesus. We submit ourselves to him which includes praying in the desire that more good things than hard things would come to make us more like Jesus. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, we will get what we need to be more like Jesus. Well, that's pleasant. <laughs> but it's, think about the alternative. It's what I always go back to. Okay, God has really good reasons for bringing this bad suffering into our lives and that seems bad so what's the alternative god doesn't have a good reason for bringing the suffering in your life he's either too weak or too mean to stop it and it's meaningless or too busy distracted doesn't care about enough enough about you personally taking stripping god of his sovereignty because there's evil and suffering in the world solves nothing and adds a hundred more problems. 